Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Diana Worrell addresses our understanding of the universe and the largely uncharted structures that we find when we explore space. Um, okay, so with no ado, I'm going to sort of make some assertions, some of which I will sort of show some evidence uh, supporting, some of which uh, I hope you'll just sort of take. Um, <coughs> The first one is that a massive black hole lives at the center of every galaxy. Uh, the second one is that about 10% of galaxies are what we call active. And that really means that they have very luminous centers and indeed uh, were first um, mistaken for stars because the, the centers are so bright, they seem like point-like objects instead of being uh, full galaxies. About 1% of these um, eject radio-emitting jets at any one time, and that's going to be a main focus of this talk. And the, out power, the outflow power of these jets is higher previously thought, so that's where the contemporary, the new research comes in, and these jets then greatly outpower the radiant luminosity. So we're talking about the power <coughs> tied up in the mass, the velocity, the speed at which mass is going out, so uh, kinetic power. These jets disturb their surroundings and beyond, and the sort of bottom line is, is that what we're trying to understand is how the, the sort of central engine that powers these jets, very, very powerful jets out to uh, large distances, uh, these central engines, which are based on the black hole, what, what, how, how there is some regulation that's going on. And, uh, and we'll explore that a little bit, the uh, feedback between the very large, and where we're talking about greater than 100,000 light years, and the very small, where we're talking about less than one light day, so distances in which a light travels in either 100,000 years or in less than a day. And uh, there seems to be some sort of feedback, some regulation on those uh, immensely different scales. Okay, so the first assertion was that uh, there's a massive black hole in the center of every galaxy. Well, the argument that there's a black hole, massive black hole in the center of our galaxy is certainly robust. Um, this became possible when uh, powerful ground-based infrared astronomy uh, became available. Looking towards the center of our galaxy, there's a lot of dust in the way. It scatters the light. We can't see right into the center. But by looking at the infrared light that is possible and powerful <coughs> telescopes, not only see them, but track their motions over time. Uh, there are more than one group that has done this work, uh, the pictures I'll show are from the uh, University of California, Los Angeles group, uh, by Gezadal. And um, 
What happens is they tracked individual stars over a period of time, and by just basically applying looking how gravity is the orbits, um, it's possible to find the mass in the center that is controlling, dictating these, these orbits. Of course, it's a bit more complicated than our solar system because there are a lot of stars packed in, and they're not all going round in one plane. They're sort of going all over the place, so un unraveling it all and measuring the mass is fairly complicated, but it is possible. And now... Uh, some of these stars, have, one of them anyway, has made a, a complete orbit. So here we're looking over time and uh, looking at a little animation showing the paths of the stars, and I think it repeats now. And it's evidence like this that uh, tells us what the mass is of the central object, and it tells us that it has to be in a fairly uh, confined space. So... Uh, that is good evidence that what we have is something like 100 million times, uh, sorry, not 100 million, uh, um, what was it, 3.2, 4.5, million times the mass of our sun in a compact object, and that's a supermassive black hole. So the wisdom that's uh, grown up over the last decade or so is that all galaxies have supermassive black holes at their centre. The sort of work that's possible on the in the centre of our galaxy becomes more difficult when looking at external galaxies, but at least uh, for reasonably nearby ones, it's possible to get good measurements using similar techniques, looking at the motions of, of central stars. And what's found is a very good correlation between the mass that's inferred and another measurement that is done that's really quite easy to do, which is to look at the random speeds of stars in the much larger scale stellar bulges of these galaxies. Now, these stellar bulges are so far out that we're not now looking at just the effect of uh, the black hole's influence of gravity, but we're really looking at something that ought to be gravitationally decoupled but shows a very nice correlation over several powers of 10, several so this is like 10 to the 6th, our million solar mass black hole. And up here, we're looking at uh, several times 10 to the 9th, so three orders of magnitude or more uh, larger. So this is a uh, logarithmic plot. This thing itself is, tends to be known as the M-sigma relation, mass and sigma is what is used for this uh, stellar velocity dispersion. Based on measurements that are done on relatively nearby galaxies and then using sort of other indicators to get mass, um, this, is, this tends to be extended to other galaxies. And indeed, it's so uh, well sort of adopted now that often a, a correlation like this is, is used to 
uh, determine the mass or to estimate the mass, the central black hole of an object, if, if there's no other real information about it, because it's uh, reasonably easy to measure the dispersion of the stars. One just has to make a spectrum and look at the broadening of emission lines uh, from, the, from the stars to find this uh, velocity dispersion. So that's an easy measurement. This one, independently, is a, is a difficult measurement. But it does seem that uh, uh, black holes and something much further out seem to grow together. And uh, this is one of these, um, if you like, mysteries, one of the uh, ideas that people have been trying to understand now, in about 10% of galaxies, the radiative luminosity from near the black hole outshines the starlight. And these are our active galaxies. Now, this in itself is, is an amazing thing because we think of black holes as being black, as being dark. And uh, we're taught fairly early on when we hear about black holes that they suck everything in. And uh, you imagine if, if anything goes near it, it will, it'll get pulled in. And that indeed is what will happen if you're going on a direct path to a black hole. But that's not what most things do. Uh, most material would not fall directly into a black hole. Uh, if that case, there would be no radiation. Uh, but mostly, uh, material bouncing angles, a bit like comets in our solar system, they sort of orbit around. Uh, unlike our solar system, and unlike all the debris around the Earth, in orbit around the Earth, they can build up an awful lot of this material. Um, so much of it that... Uh, it will form a disk. So looking at uh, the sort of impression from the side, here's where a black hole will be, and here's the disk. Material will fall in and uh, come in, and it'll, it'll go into orbit around uh, that central, very massive object. And once enough material builds up, it will sort of rub against the other material at other radii, it will uh, cause friction, heat, radiation, and that's why these disks then become uh, very bright. And that's what uh, outshines then all the stars that are um, in those galaxies. Now, a fraction at any given time, maybe uh, about 1% of galaxies, are even more exotic, and they have jets emanating from them. And uh, here's an illustration of one from, uh, taken from real data. If we look first on the right-hand side, we're looking at the central regions uh, from the Hubble Space Telescope, and uh, what you can see here is some evidence. There's an awful lot of obscuration going on here. And inside, right in the center here, is where the black hole and that accretion disk should be. We don't have uh, the resolution to image 
on the scale of an accretion disk. Uh, so it's, it's sort of in there. And in this object, um, we believe some uh, obscurations. So outside of this, there's, there must be a lot of uh, dust and gas that's uh, meaning that we, we do, we're not seeing light into it from the side anyway. And uh, since we're looking at objects like this, on, on the side, we, we can't really see right into the center, so they don't look incredibly bright in the optical, but there is a lot of uh, power and luminosity in there, and uh, that indeed comes out at other wavelengths. Um, if we now go to a ground-based picture of the optical light of that galaxy, it's this white stuff here. This is the extent of the optical galaxy, and coming out here on this picture, this now is radio emission. So it needs to be viewed with radio telescopes that make images, and uh, the main point here is that these jets come right out of the galaxy. They extend to much larger distances even than the um, than the optical light here. There are many examples of these. Um, I could show you lots of pretty pictures of jetted sources. I think they're, they're fantastic things. I've chosen a few, and I apologize for some of the color schemes here. They may not be the best, but I chose these particularly because I wanted to show an optical picture underneath, and the radio uh, jet sources on top. So you get an idea that they really do, in many cases, extend from the optical picture. So these are images taken with the uh, very large array of radio telescopes in uh, New Mexico. So they're from the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in the US. And uh, here are the all this green here is optical light, and the red is showing uh, radio uh, in plasma that's coming out. We will get to talk a little bit more about this uh, radio plasma, but to get you thinking the right way, you should be thinking that these are jets of material that are traveling from the center at pretty fast speeds. And by pretty fast speeds, I mean an appreciable fraction of the speed of light. So, and so this is material that is radiating in the radio. Um, and we'll see a little bit what that mechanism is. Here's another example. Not always are they quite so two-sided here, but you can see there's emission on both sides. It's a little bit more diffuse here. It's still bright in the center, the optical uh, emission, and here are, here are some of these jets. Uh, sometimes they get very disrupted. Optical emission here and uh, the double twin jets, so both directions, it appears, um, but they're getting um, quite disrupted. That uh, sort of implies that uh, whatever this is, it's probably fairly light. Um, now, what is the mechanism? Well, a bit of physics here. Uh, 
Why they, why they light up is because they must contain uh, light particles, electrons, and magnetic fields. Now, one of the, one of the great things about astronomy, I, I sort of have to think, think about this sometime, but the, the way we do astronomy is that we observe the radiation, and that's how we, we view the universe. We, we observe things. They have to emit radiation. That electromagnetic radiation is usually from a very simple process that we have a charged particle and something is providing a force on that, that particle. And it could be that there's another charged particle and it's attracted or repelled. Um, it will radiate. So if you take any, any particle that has charge and we sit it down it won't produce electromagnetic radiation that we can observe. If it goes at a constant speed, it doesn't. But as soon as it either accelerates or decelerates, we get some radiation by some mechanism. Where there are magnetic fields, charged particles go round magnetic field lines, they get accelerated, and they produce radiation. And uh, the mechanism producing this radiation is known as synchrotron radiation, and uh, uh, many of you may know things about synchrotrons from ground-based particle ex uh, physics experiments and things like that, but uh, they, uh, it's sort of the same mechanism, charged particles and magnetic fields. So this outflowing material is a mixture of magnetic field and these light particles. The, the, they're part of our, our atoms, the, the outer uh, light particles, the electrons. Heavy particles are, are not very good at producing uh, uh, this sort of radiation. So this is light particles moving at speeds close to the speed of light, so themselves they're moving very fast, in a mush, which we tend to call a plasma, that is itself has bulk motion out from the, that, that uh, uh, supermassive black hole, and that bulk motion is at a speed uh, close to the speed of light. The uh, mechanism here is known because um, you get a strong polarization from synchrotron radiation, and that can be observed. So uh, we're confident that that is the mechanism that's... Uh, um, involved. So because we see the jets from their electrons, well, there must be electrons there as well as magnetic. Um, the net charge must be neutral. Electrons are all of negative charge. Um, if uh, we had a plasma moving out with just negative charges, that would they would repel one another. And so that uh, plasma would, dis would flow out, would disrupt. It would not be nicely collimated in a jet. So there's got to be something that's positive charge. It could be the antiparticle for the electron, the positrons, or heavier particles, protons, have positive charge. They're roughly 2,000 times more massive than an electron. So... 
it's somewhat of an embarrassment that we don't precisely know the composition of these jets, which means we don't know the mass of individual elements of it, but uh, we do know that it's uh, uh, moving fast. Uh, how are they produced? Well, um, this is a difficult issue, difficult theoretical issue, so I'm not going to go there. I'm an observer, <laughs> and uh, it's a hard, hard uh, issue as to how they're produced. Um, then it's maybe related to some sort of magnetic dynamo. You can see that uh, they're, they're two-sided, the rotations could be involved, the, the, um, but we won't, we won't pursue that. So then, how fast are they really going? So back to some more of my, my uh, uh, nice false-color pictures here. Um, here's another double-sided jet and uh, optical with the radio emission, and now we're zeroing in onto the, into the center here. And um, first thing you should see about this is it looks somewhat asymmetric. So that, that side seems brighter than that side. And that's common. Uh, the, the pictures that I've shown you have been a little bit selected to de-emphasize that because I've wanted to show you the optical galaxy and two nice jets coming out. But it is uh, typical, especially in the inner regions, that they're very asymmetric. And this is one of the main reasons that we can be pretty sure that the outflows themselves are very fast. And that is because then there's a mechanism that can explain uh, why one side is brighter than another. Um, one thing I should just remind you, of course, in astronomy, we look at everything projected onto our celestial wallpaper. So objects that are two-sided jets, so if I'm object here, my jet's like this, you, of course, or an observer, of course, sees that as two things projected on the sky, which is, I like to call it, our celestial wallpaper. Um, they could, one of those jets could be going really quite close to the line of sight, uh, just taking the observations. We don't immediately know what that uh, angle is to those two-sided jets. Special relativity comes into this. So we're into... Uh, Einstein's special relativity here. Um, fantastic stuff. Most of you probably heard of it. Um, maybe not all of you um, are too familiar with it. The idea is that uh, one way of talking about it is that normally speeds add. So, for example, supposing you're looking at a, a boat coming towards you. Um, you're standing on the dock. Boat's coming towards you. Somebody's running across that boat. You would 
deduce their speed to be the combination of the motion of the boat and their, uh, their speed running across it. And uh, you would combine them, add them together, and, uh, or combine them or subtract them, and do it in, in the proper sense, and you would get the result. The strange thing happens as speeds become very fast that the, the laws for combining them change and in the very extreme limit is the speed of light. And if you had something traveling at the speed of light on which there was somebody running at the speed of light, it wouldn't be possible, but if that were the case, then you would not just simply add those things, you would see the result as still the speed of light. That's basically what underlies special relativity, but it, because of it, it has uh, some interesting effects. And one of those is uh, a beaming effect. So if we now think of a light bulb light bulb that is radiating in all directions. It's just sitting there. It's sending its light uniformly everywhere. And now let's have it move. And as an observer, you're viewing that moving light bulb. You would no longer see the light as if it were going uniformly in all directions. Instead, the light is beamed in the forward direction of the motion of the light bulb. So here are my various light bulbs. In this case, they're moving across to the right, and this one's going at half the speed of light. This one is going at 98% the speed of light. And instead of being now uniformly distributed, the light is very asymmetric. The power does not change. You would still deduce, if you could uh, correctly model it, that the power is the same as if you had the light bulb at rest. So the, the total power does not change. It's just that uh, it's directed differently. And this has um, quite a consequence because it means that if you're sitting in front of a source traveling towards you at a very large fraction of the speed of light, it looks very much brighter. And uh, these factors become very extreme. If you're behind it, if it's going away from you, it's beaming its light, often called the, uh, uh, the headlight effect is, uh, is how this is often described. It's, uh, it's beaming its light in, uh, away from you then, and you will see it um, relatively dim. So if we take this analogy, uh, or if we take this and use it for our two, our double-beamed uh, jets coming out from our uh, black hole in the center of the galaxy, if indeed the stuff is flowing down them at a fraction of a, a, a large fraction of the speed of light, then the jet that's pointed towards the observer appears very much brighter than that in the opposite direction. And because we understand the physics of, of how to do this, measurements of these asymmetries 
can help us deduce the fact that these jets are indeed traveling very fast. So now I'm going to pick up the story with uh, adding some extra information, and this is from X-ray astronomy. So there have been recent advances, well, perhaps not so recent now, in that uh, I'm talking about a satellite that was launched in 1999, so it's uh, over 12 years old now, Um, but it's been uh, gathering some absolutely fantastic information (coughs) on these jetted sources. And the one I'm going to talk about, the mission I'm going to talk about is known as Chandra, after launch, after Chandra Sekar, who uh, did a lot of, uh, was a Nobel laureate, did uh, a lot of important theoretical work on uh, evolution, or uh, modeling, modeling of stars and their evolution. Um, this uh, uh uh, launched on the ill-fated Columbia shuttle uh, in 1999. And what was special, what is special, see, no, no end date yet, it's still bringing us fantastic data. What is special about this is it's uh, very sharp images. And this is very sharp for X-ray pictures. Um, the resolution is of order one arc second, which matches the sort of resolution that large optical telescopes at least used to get. They they ground using uh, fancy techniques, but uh, certainly when large telescopes started, one arc second was was a uh, a reasonable... uh, Resolution, and uh, that's limited by the disturbance of our own atmosphere above uh, ground-based telescopes. Um, To get this sort of precision, we're talking about making telescopes that have smoothness of sort of a fraction of a nanometer. And uh, For those of you who haven't met X-ray astronomy before, I can tell you the telescopes are rather unusual. They're a little bit like uh, elaborate tin cans. Uh, And here's the inside of one. The X-rays are focused by grazing incidence, or a bit like total internal reflection. The X-rays... This and are brought to a focus at the back, the front and the back. But as I say, do this. This is at a very early stage. These uh, mirrors had to be uh, polished on the side to, uh, say, fractions of a nanometer. They're sort of a glass ceramic, and then they're coated with, uh, uh, in this case, iridium. So. Uh, a metal on the inside. So X-rays, we started being able to view these jets in X-rays. Uh, 
quite so spectacular to you because the radio emission is huge and the X-rays are these jets here. But this is really exciting for a lot of reasons. The first is that um, in this case, we believe these are still synchrotron radiations. So the same mechanism that produces the radio emission over much larger scales. But in order to produce X-rays, these are much higher energy, much uh, shorter wavelength. The electrons responsible have to be something like 10,000 times more energetic than those producing the radio. Um, and that means that these particles have been given enormous uh, energies. The lifetime of the particles producing the radiation uh, scales inversely as, uh, as their energy. So um, if we're talking about uh, the um, X-ray emitting electrons, they only live for about 30 years in producing this radiation. That is an incredibly short time in anything to do with uh, certainly looking at other galaxies and things on that turn scale. Whereas the radio-emitting um, electrons can live uh, several hundred thousand years. So that's one of the reasons that it's not surprising that the X-ray jet is somewhat shorter than because uh, they, any, anything producing the X-ray has to be given that energy uh, over relatively short timescales. Here's another example of one of these, the one the radio pictures with the optical the radio jets, and here's what happens when you look in the X-ray, and the colors here are... However, they're not... They are... So if we look at nearby examples, full detail here is... Uh, basically our closest bright uh, jet seen in another galaxy. And this is an X-ray picture. Here's where the nucleus is. Here's the jet. The length of the X-ray emission tends to be about 3,000 light years. So although we expect everything produced, it's producing a jet at least 3,000 uh, light years in length, and that means that the, those uh, electrons must be gaining energy throughout that, uh, that jet region. It's not just getting all its energy, they're not just getting all their energy from close to the black hole, which is in there, to, and, uh, and then propagating out. Sometimes... Sometimes the jets are really long in the X-ray. Um, so these are particularly jets that are at very small angle to the line of sight. We know that they must be because there's a very large anisotropy even in the radio between one jet being very bright and one not being bright. The contours here are the radio underneath 
is X-ray emission. And the same is here. And in some cases, these X-ray jets are very long. They go almost out to the end of the radio jet. And they're too bright in the X-ray to be uh, from the synchrotron mechanism. We do have another process that um, can produce this, but this really does require that the jets are traveling the plasma within this jet. So what's going down this funnel is uh, speeds very close to the speed of light. And now we're talking about very large scales. Um, a kiloparsec, these parsec unit, multiply it by about three, and you get light years. So we're talking about uh, several hundred thousand light years in length. And that is projected length, because these jets are coming at small angle to the observer. So as you project the length back onto the wallpaper of the sky, you won't see it as very long. In reality, it will be very much longer. So these things are, are very long. So in these cases, um, we can be talking about the power in the outflow, so not the luminosity they're producing, but the power because they're going so fast and because we know that they've got material in them, we can figure out what the, the power is, and they end up being something like 10 with 39 zeros after it in terms of watts. And so I think you can see that's an awful lot of light bulbs um, coming out there. The mechanism here is a little bit different, but same sort of principle. Uh, in this case, though, the electron is, is actually scattering radiation up to X-ray energies. And uh, in this case, it will be scattering uh, the cosmic microwave background. They need to be going fast. Uh, in order to, again, have special relativity assist in uh, making these uh, jets very bright. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Now, I hope I've made the point that we see these jets, uh, we understand something about them, and we know that they're, they've got a lot of... Uh, power in them because we believe they're going very fast and they contain material. We may not know quite how, much, how massive the material is, uh, but uh, even the lower limits make, uh, make the power quite high. X-ray helped in another way, and that is that we can now see that in many cases, these jets are displacing the gas through which they travel. Now, you might think that um, these jets are just traveling in outer space and there isn't very much there. Well, that's the first order. That's true, of course. But when you look in detail, you realize that there is a lot of material. We call it gas, and we call it highly ionized gas. And... Uh, 
It's basically hydrogen because that's what the universe is or was. Stars started making heavier things. Uh, it's hydrogen where the photons and the electrons are separated. And this gas is held together in galaxies because there's the mass of stars. It's holding them in. There's, there's other mass on dark matter. We're not going to be talking about that today, but uh, holding this gas in. And this gas is real particles, electrons and protons that we know about. And they're free electrons going around the protons. They uh, radiate. Same reason. We've got a charge, another charge. It feels a force, so it radiates. It radiates in the X-ray because these particles are going at just about the right speeds to be doing that. Uh, the gas is, we call it very hot, about 10 million degrees, and uh, we see this gas through its X-ray emission. So this gas are these free electron photons. The density isn't very high, about 1,000 of these little particles per cubic meter. Um, and they're moving less fast than the particles in the jets, so the electrons are only traveling at about a tenth the speed of light, and the protons are less fast than that. Still pretty fast in, in, uh, in our terms of uh, thinking about the things we do on Earth. The pictures then in x-rays, when you look at the full situation and you look at uh, jetted sources, is that we see this background of the x-ray emitting gas. Now, in these, the contours are, are radio, contours, radio, and the color is the uh, x-ray gas. And uh, here, these ones were done by the Chandra Center as press releases, so they're perhaps a little prettier and more obvious, but here are, um, here are jets. And what I hope you can see is that the jet and low material seems to be evacuating cavities underneath. So here, for example, you see it looks like the gas is wrapped around the uh, radio structures. In other words, these jets, as I call them, they're kind of lobby out here, but these jets appear to be displacing this X-ray emitting gas. Now, it does take quite a lot of work to do that. And uh, Chandra has, has come up with a, you know, quite a large number of examples of this. So we're, we're pretty confident that this is not an isolated phenomena now. We can measure how much gas has been pushed aside. That's not too difficult. We sort of understand the properties of the gas. We can see the volume. We don't have to take into account special relativistic effects in dealing with that. And uh, it's reasonably straightforward. If we want to convert that into a power that's uh, been required to do it, we have to figure out how long it took to evacuate it. And so there's our guesstimate 
um, the age of the source uh, to figure out uh, how long it's been doing that, and the power border 10 million years. And then these results confirm that we're talking about substantial jet powers. And the sort of numbers we're talking about are greater than 30 times the total radiative power. So if you add up all that radio emission, the X-ray emission, everything that you see that we observe, that's how we do our astronomy, look at that power, compare it with how much power has been, you know, must be in these jets to push away uh, the material, we know that, that it's that, uh, that power that's dominating. So we could think of this and say that these jets then are actually pretty inefficient radiators, although they are nice beacons on the they're easy to find with radio telescopes, but uh, they're inefficient compared with their efficient conveyor of energy to large distance. So now we've sort of come to, we've got a mechanism that could take energy that is set off by this supermassive black hole, supermassive black hole that lives in the center, that has its secretion disk that's radiating, but then the ones that are producing these big jets, we're, we're finding that there's a, a, a mechanism now that, that can send energy to large distances. We need to dissipate that if we're going to um, use it in any useful way. Some of them we might not be using in a terribly useful way, especially the ones I showed you where the X-ray jets are as, almost as long as the radio jets. They're propagating way out of the galaxies. Um, that might not be helping our idea of feedback. But particularly in these ones that are boring these cavities in the um, X-ray gas, the paradigm is that there is some sort of distributed heating that would happen over cosmic time. Um, we'd need this, you can sort of um, Swiss cheese with many of these bubbles. So the jets being on for a while, turning off, new bubbles produced, um, gas mixing, buoyant cavities, and um, for that to happen, you do need to inflate these lobes. You need jets probably to be once in a while, and you do need intermittency. But if that happens and we get multiple outbursts from uh, individual galaxies, and while some galaxies are on, some other galaxies are off, then um, this could be a reasonably effective mechanism of uh, dissipating power, um, ultimately. If we do that, if these jets are providing power out, then they're going to impede the fall of fuel onto the black hole. This whole idea that black holes, 
radiate, they're effective in doing things, requires them to be fed by gas. If we cut off their fuel supply, then they will die off. We won't see them as these bright centers, and their jets should turn off. And so this sort of underlies one of the mechanisms that we think is happening to explain why black holes and galaxies grow together, or why these things very small in the center um, have an effect on larger scales. And so I've drawn a sort of feedback loop here. The idea is that when we have more jet, we get less gas in full. That means less black hole growth star formation, so the jet is depositing its energy, um, but then, then it turns things off, and that means then we have less jet. That means uh, after there's less jet, then we can get back to more gas infall, more black holes, and uh, the star formation. So there appears to be some regulation. We know it has to exist from data elsewhere, and these jets appear to uh, be providing at least part, an important part of that picture. So, to summarize what I've been saying, 100% uh, of galaxies have central black holes. About 1% produce these jets with outflow powers. We now know they're about 30 times the total radiative power of the galaxy. So, something black can dictate a galaxy's energy, the, uh, this black hole at the center, which is in itself an amazing uh, thing when you think about it. Um, energy dissipation from jet activity may inversely regulate both the black hole growth and star formation, and that's how we get our feedback loop. And if we want to start thinking about sizes, then what we're talking about in relative terms, P controlling something the size of the Earth. So these supermassive black holes are still small uh, in terms of their volume compared with uh, the outskirts that they appear to be regulating. So thank you very much. Thank you.